Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Think about sleep as one of the fundamental functions of your life and not something that you can always squeeze, right? It's always the one bit that goes. If you have a more busy family life or a hectic professional life and then you want to socialize as well, the only thing that can give you sleep. And then uh, people end up with five hours sleep and uh, some of them are even proud of it and think, oh, well, I'm a tough guy. I can work hard and party hard and five hours are good enough for me. Well, good luck in the long run because it, it will catch up and cause significant damage later in the long Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world-leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive, and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness, and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. On today's podcast, I am interviewing a doctor who studied with the first sleep scientists in the world. Dr. Oliver Banath began his career studying medicine at the University of Ulm and UCL. After completing his medical doctorate theses, he trained as a neurologist at the University of Chicago and completed fellowships at the University of California, San Francisco in clinical neurophysiology. He trained in sleep medicine with the pioneers in the field in Chicago and then at the world's first sleep disorders clinic at Stanford University. Dr. Banath holds U.S. board certifications in neurology, neurophysiology, and sleep medicine. He led the Northern Californian Sleep Disorder Center in San Francisco and now sees patients at the NHS Sleep Clinic at Guy's Hospital in London. And he also works alongside the Lanzerhof, advising patients on their sleep health. Dr. Oliver is truly brilliant. We were put in touch and ended up having the best conversation. I was able to fire all my burning questions I had about sleep, the science of sleep and breaking down the facts and fiction around sleep. It is such an honor to have such a world leading expert on the topic on the show today. What's a favorite quote you return to often and why? It's from the Bible, a letter from Paul to the Corinthians, uh, where he says, and now there are these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Or if you want a slightly less religious equivalent by Friedrich Nietzsche, we have to follow our destiny with joy, otherwise we have to do it with tears. So for me, it just means that no matter what comes your way, you have to do it with joy in your heart and with love for other people and for yourself, and just stay with that. Gosh, what an amazing way to open up this interview. That is so beautiful. And why did that particularly resonate with you? Because I guess, you know, you could have chosen any quote. Well, I just think with all adversity that comes one's way, but also the things that go well, one just has to focus on things that one enjoys and that one is good at and keep doing that one and go for it. Uh, one can't let oneself be bogged down by, by negativity. I know it's easier than, said than done, but, but that's what I strive towards. Even in earlier on in your career, 
did you have a sense of what you were good at? Has that been something that's almost been quite clear to you? Yes, it did occur to me the latest sort of in early medical school when I enjoyed being with patients that have chronic diseases rather than ones that one can quickly fix. And so I felt that um, just being with a person, even though I can't necessarily cure them, but help have still a positive outlook in life and, and overcome the obstacles and just be there in the long run, uh, I found very rewarding for myself. And uh, so that's why I'm in neurology where lots of uh, conditions are long term or in sleep medicine where, again, a lot of the conditions are chronic, but one can still help a lot uh, and have uh, in patients having then a fulfilling and happy life despite all the um, shortcomings in, in their personal health. So that's what excited me most. I really appreciate that um, answer because I feel like the world and our culture currently is the complete opposite. I feel like we're being conditioned to want and need these quick fixes and look for careers that are quite instant. And actually, what you just said is incredibly inspiring to see the beauty in this more of a long-term approach, which you have dedicated your career to. And this brings me on to uh, what's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently and why? Pretty much um, what I just mentioned, the path in our future, we can't predict. We can try and plan and shape it. But if I think of big things in my life, I had planned one thing and things came somehow differently. Uh, at the time, it might have felt like a big disappointment or sort of a why me type of thing. But uh, afterwards, many of these uh, perceived setbacks actually turned out to be a blessing in disguise later. So I just have to trust that uh, good things will happen if I just keep going in, in the right direction and then uh, it will pan out in the end. That's really reassuring to hear. And how do you define happiness? I'm generally a happy person most of the time. So but I feel most happy when I see my family and friends and myself being able to get on with life in safety and without all other struggles and getting on with life makes me happy itself. So I guess I'm a very humble guy in that regard. I don't have any great things that make me happy, but it's quite, as I say, quite simple. Well, well, I feel like you've cracked the happiness code uh, more than others because when, when it boils down to it, it is often the simple things that really make the most difference to our lives. So, to dive straight in to the subject that you have dedicated your life to studying and helping thousands of people uh, with sleep, why is it important? Well, how much time do we have, Bobby? <laughs> one, one could actually ask, how, how do we? Why do we even ask this question? Mm. We spend about a third of our entire life sleeping, more than any other activity, by a very long shot. And sleeping is quite dangerous. You know, if when we lived in wilderness, when we were Neanderthals, it was very dangerous to be asleep and uh, fall victim to some predator. So evolution, I'm sure, would have come up with a creature that, that doesn't need sleep to avoid that risk, but it hasn't. So that those few facts must tell us that it does something, something extremely important. Uh, it's about as important as breathing, eating, or drinking. If we didn't sleep, we would we die sooner or later. So the primary function of sleep is to allow the brain to do its own programming, if you will, and to digest all the events of the day and to decide what to learn and what to forget and what to do about all this information that has come in. At the same time, while the brain is doing that and we are unconscious in the rest, so to speak, uh, there are many other bodily functions that use the opportunity by not running around and having time for that. So, for example, growing and healing is something that's very much uh, during sleeping time rather than any other time of the day. So what is the connection between sleep deprivation and mental health? Quite a lot. Sleep deprivation 
Uh, as you would Im imagine, if you don't have enough sleep to cope with all the information that comes in every day, then uh, we just get uh, some overload. But specifically, sleep deprivation in the long run leads quite often to depression. The issue is, initially, with sleep deprivation after a night or two or so, people start getting irritable and grouchy, can't tolerate frustration as well before they even feel tired. Only then they start feeling tired. And then there's some cognitive performance drop and people you know, make silly mistakes or forget things quite easily. In the longer run, then people can get depressed simply because the sensation of being sleep deprived is depressing in its own right. And secondly, people become less socially active. And as humans, we are social creatures. So if you isolate a person, then they become depressed. And if a person is sleep deprived in the evening rather than seeing friends and socializing, they'd rather be left by themselves uh, and fall asleep and sort of isolate themselves a bit more. So that can cause depression. And then there's, of course, the, what I mentioned earlier, cognitive performance drop that can also cause uh, car accidents, uh, for example. And so that's a big risk as well. It's not specifically a mental health problem, but, you know, neurocognitive function is so much impaired in uh, sleep deprivation that that becomes a big risk. But what's actually happening in the brain while you sleep that then promotes more stable mental health the next day? Actually, quite a lot. So sleep is not just a one type of phase uh, that our brain and body is in overnight, but there are different sleep stages uh, that we go through. So let's start with the brain. So over the course of the day, lots of uh, short-term memories are formed, and then the cerebral has to decide as to what can be forgotten, what should be remembered, and what can we learn from the day's experience of the future. Uh, remember memories not so much about the past memories much more about the future so what can i learn from my experience to be better ready to respond to a similar situation in the future and that happens in different sleep stages as i mentioned um, now the body that wouldn't need unconsciousness like the brain does in order to shut off and control its own input and does the programming but the body makes the use of us being at rest lying down not running around and uh, not physically active to for certain functions for example Children grow only really in their sleep. Most of the daily growth hormone gets secreted within the first few slow-wave sleep phases. Similarly, there are many other hormones that have a 24-hour rhythm, be it cortisol, be it melatonin and the like, that change over, over the course of the 20-hour period. So, for example, tissue healing or muscle growth and things like that uh, happen mainly in sleep. What about the brain chemistry? How does sleep support the brain chemistry the next day? Because from what I understand, if you're more likely to feel lethargic and tired, perhaps you're not having your dopamine receptors pinging from all angles. What is the relationship between sleep and brain chemicals? Very simply, the main brain chemical you wish that we experience when we get tired is called adenosine. Mm. And that's sort of a byproduct of wakefulness, if you so wish, of the brain's activity and the level of adenosine gradually increases with hours of wakefulness. And with higher levels, that increases what's called a sleep pressure. So the higher the adenosine levels becomes, the more we feel sleepy. Once we are asleep, the adenosine gets washed away, if you so wish, and so the sleep pressure reduces. The other brain chemical that's often mentioned is uh, melatonin. That's a hormone of darkness produced by our pineal glands as the light goes dimmer. However, it is not actually a hormone of sleep because uh, animals that are awake at night still have high melatonin levels at night as it is dark. So it's more a hormone of darkness as such. Uh, but it, in humans, since we are uh, daytime gatherers and hunters and sleep at night, uh, there's obviously an overlap between what darkness and, and when we sleep. But uh, I think that gets often mixed up a little bit. 
And then there are, of course, a whole range of um, chemicals. I mean, another one that's quite often mentioned is acetylcholine, one of the neurotransmitters uh, that in particular in Alzheimer's disease and dementias uh, starts dropping out and causing significant problems with memory function and other cognitive functions. Uh, is also heavily involved in sleep regulation. And so people with lower acetylcholine levels in their brain would get more tired. That's where people with dementia have sort of poor day-night regulation and have poor sleep at night and uh, nap often during the daytime and feel always a bit sleepy. There are many, many other chemicals in the brain, but I think I leave it at these for, for the moment. So if you have a really strong sleep pressure, you're feeling really, really tired, is that what gives us the short fuse, for example, that is more likely to get into arguments more, potentially be more aggressive or make bad decisions or be more reactive like what's causing us to be that emotionally reactive version of ourselves yeah so a good question it's probably not as easy to pin it down to a particular chemical uh, as such but you're right um, with increased sleep pressure one does get irritable and as i mentioned if you sleep deprived and then people one of the first symptoms is uh, irritability um, and then later only comes in cognitive decline by the way with sleep deprivation pretty much anything any performance you want to measure uh, deteriorates it's not just cognitive but also physical activity how fast you can run how accurate you can serve in tennis and all these things uh, all deteriorate very quickly if you sleep less than uh, eight or seven hours but that's not possible or resensible, I think, to pin it down to a particular chemical. Otherwise, we'll all run to the pharmacy and try to get a supplement that enhances <laughs> that particular one. But, uh, but I wish things were as simple, but, but they're not. Okay, it makes sense. The entire body is just more tired. And this brings me on to then, what is the relationship between sleep and the immune system? Why do we experience coughs and colds? I think maybe four times more likely to get a cough and cold after a bad night's sleep than we would be if we were sleeping appropriate hours yeah the immune system is another organ if you so will that is uh hugely complex and if you follow the literature every half year then there's something else new and, and becomes even more complicated but uh just in short in sleep there's a lot of repair going on inflammation typically is lower uh, so people with rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease are so know very well that if they get sleep deprived these conditions typically flare up so there's a lot of calming down in sleep if you wish. However, there's also, you mentioned um, sensitivity to catching the cold or other infections with sleep deprivation. That certainly is the case. Also, the immune system takes care of cancer cells that form in our body all the time, but the immune system just knocks them off. So we don't get cancer all the time, luckily. So with sleep deprivation, there's an increased risk of cancer as well. How exactly does again to work is sort of a very complicated question of multiple chemicals and hormones and mediators and so on interacting. Part of that may also depend on a timing. Like, for example, our cortisol levels drop around midnight quite low and then towards um, getting up in the morning, they go up again, I guess, getting us ready to face the day, if you wish. But it depends a bit also on a chronotype. So are you an early bird or an evening person as to when you have your your spike in cortisol. So then the question sometimes comes up, you know, says so a cold shower early in the morning, good for you. I've been just to friends in Ireland that go swimming in the ocean at six o'clock in the morning. That's great if you're a morning person and your cortisol level is high up and you're ready for that. But if you're like me, a night owl very late and it's not a great idea. And if I do that, I probably would catch a cold because my cortisol levels are still so low at that time in the morning and uh, I'm not ready to uh, fight off these infections as effectively. 
And this, I guess, brings me on to this idea of not all sleep is equal, because as you just said, restful sleep is obviously really helpful in protecting and supporting the immune system. But you could be in bed sleeping in inverted commas, but have a really restless sleep. What are some of the factors that influence the quality of the sleep that you're getting? I think I mentioned earlier, we, sleep is not just one thing, but it, it comes in different types or different sleep stages. They're called so stage one sleep is just around when you fall asleep and doze off. That's followed then by stage two sleep. That's a bit deeper. That forms about half of our entire time in sleep. Uh, then we go into a slow wave sleep named after the EEG pattern, the stage three sleep or deep sleep, uh, where it is quite hard to be woken up. And then there's also REM sleep, the rapid eye movement sleep is when we have our most vivid dreams. And if we wake up from a REM sleep, then, then we can typically recall quite vivid dreams, a bit like a, like a movie. Whereas if you wake up in other sleep stages, uh, there's also dreaming, but it's more ill-defined, more confusing if you wish when you wake up. Now, if a person is selectively sleep deprived and gets a little slow wave sleep, that's what makes the person feel least refreshed and tired the next day. Uh, and the following night, sleep would prioritize to catch up on the slow wave sleep at the cost of other sleep stages. REM sleep is more associated with emotional balance or, you know, working up emotional challenges of the day, but also with creativity, finding remote bits in the memory that uh, gets tried to put together, see whether anything useful comes out. Most of the time, of course, it doesn't, like in bizarre dreams, but uh, fresh ideas also come from combining uh, things that not usually come together. So that's in REM sleep. So if people have suppressed REM sleep, then their creativity drops. But that's healthy sleep. Now, there are also things that can go wrong at night, like, for example, breathing with snoring and obstructive sleep apnea being so very, very typical examples where the person may think they're asleep all night long. And yes, they are unconscious and asleep, but the quality of sleep is poor so that instead of getting the quality of sleep of eight hours sleep, they may have slept eight hours, but it feels like as if they'd only slept five hours or something less. Uh, so that they build up the same sleep deprivation if they, if they had slept a much shorter time. And that can be quite sneaky because, of course, if you just look at your clock, then, well, I, I slept eight hours should be okay. It can't be sleep deprivation, but that's exactly what it still is. And there are a number of different sleep conditions that can cause that, like a periodic limb movements in sleep and then several others. So then people get sleep deprived without actually noticing as, as such. And so... What is your advice on the whole to improve your sleep quality? Because I think that is fascinating. And I think that is something that is little known, actually. Often we'll just look at the clock and go, oh, great. I slept for seven hours. This is normal. I should feel fine. And then suddenly you just can't understand why you don't have so much energy the day afterwards. It's a slightly dangerous question, uh, probably because if you then start tracking your sleep with various uh, wearable devices, which you know may be good for many reasons, but uh, it may trigger almost a performance anxiety and, and oh, I didn't get enough slow wave sleep, or oh, tomorrow I need to get a bit more REM sleep. And what do you do about it? First question, and secondly, it creates almost like a performance anxiety towards bedtime, and then of guess what happens? People can't fall asleep because they're so nervous about it. I think the first insight or the take-home message and if people forget everything else of this podcast <laughs> um do take sleep a bit more serious give it the same attention that you do your nutrition and to your exercise everybody realizes that you know exercise is good for you and eating the right things as well and give it the same level of importance and the first thing is to realize many of us don't actually sleep enough even a single night of sleep deprivation you can measure already increase in 
tau proteins and things like that that in the long run if accumulated and you do that many nights uh, have a high risk of dementia right so the main fact is really I have a regular bed routine. If you have difficulties with sleeping, the most important part is to keep it regular, in particular the wake-up time to get out of bedtime and get bright light in the morning. And there are, of course, lots of books about sleep hygiene and the good habits and so on. Uh, it's a bit like, you know, everybody knows roughly what's the right thing to eat and how much exercise you should do, and obviously fine-tuning and, and more sophisticated advice, but the principles are, are, are not that complicated, and most people just don't prioritize it. So if you manage to get eight hours of sleep on a fairly regular basis and you're still always tired during the daytime, you may want to have a, a medical assessment. Maybe there's something else going on, right? Maybe you've got diabetes undiagnosed yet or, or any other medical condition or low thyroid gland or something uh, that would be worth finding out or a depressive illness or something else. Uh, and there, as I mentioned, there's of, of course sleep disorders that might be undetected and you could get your eight hours sleep, but you're still not refreshed. So if you snore and your bed partner tells you that you have pauses in breathing in sleep and in the daytime you get tired a lot, then you may want to get assessed for obstructive sleep apnea, a condition that's much, much more common than people realize. So there are lots of people running around undiagnosed with that. But in terms of can I improve my quality of sleep in terms of the sleep stage mix, should I get more REM sleep or slow wave sleep? That's a bit of an overdoing it. Uh, it's not that easy to target uh, those different sleep stages and the brain usually is clever enough to figure out which sleep stage it wants more of. So that is a bit like if you wanted to optimize your breathing, then you know you probably cause a mess that the brain is quite good at figuring out how much oxygen it needs in and carbon dioxide out. So the less you interfere, the better. Uh, but the main point is really um, think about sleep as one of the fundamental functions of your life and not something that you can always squeeze. Right? It's always the one bit that goes if you have a more busy family life or a hectic professional life and then you want to socialize as well the only thing that can give you sleep and then uh, people end up with five hours sleep and uh, some of them are even proud of it and think oh well, I'm, I'm a tough guy i can work hard and party hard and five hours are good enough for me uh, well good luck in the long run because it, it will catch up and cause significant damage in the long in the long term normally being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to health care it pays to be extra and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'd love to focus on that point between sleep and then long-term brain deterioration like dementia and Alzheimer's. What is the connection between investing in sleep now to long-term prevention of Alzheimer's and dementia? And it's not just Alzheimer's and dementia, it's pretty much all of the neurodegenerative conditions. Alzheimer's obviously being sort of the most dominant one, but Parkinson's disease, another one, other forms of dementia. 
Well, it has been shown in several studies that uh, if you sleep consistently five hours or less, the increased at the risk of any of those particular Alzheimer's dementia shoots up quite dramatically. So the statistic is quite unforgiving in that regard. Now, of course, if you wait until there's early symptoms, then you can base, maybe slow down the further progression, but your loss already ground quite a bit, right? So that's why you want to start with avoiding things that make dementia onset more likely early on, the earlier the better. So basically, now sleep well from tonight. That really affects all neurodegenerative diseases. So in my neurology practice, that's relevant because if I find somebody with early signs of Parkinson's disease, or let's say I find somebody in my sleep clinic with REM sleep behavior disorder, that's when people act out their dreams, there's a high correlation that these people will develop Parkinson's disease several years later. Unfortunately, there's at the moment no medication or other intervention that would reduce that risk or slow down the progression towards Parkinson's disease. Sleep is really the only intervention if somebody didn't sleep enough at the time. So it's not that, you know, now it needs to, everybody needs to now sleep 12 hours. That's not healthy neither. But if somebody doesn't sleep enough, then normalizing sleep and making sure that sort of the seven to eight hours or seven to nine hours really is the only intervention that can help the slowing down of progression of any of those conditions. How that exactly works is again sort of a complicated multidimensional question. Certainly has got immunological factors to it. It has to do with the deposition of the tau and the better proteins in the, in the wrong places in the brain and the clearing of the brain in the sleep phases when the recently discovered glymphatic system washes out um, waste products of the brain in night at the night time. Uh, if that doesn't happen sufficiently, then it just accumulates even more. And that seemed to be part of the basis for the biology of, of these uh, neurodegenerative disorders. So am I right in thinking this glymphatic drainage system is almost like the brain's sewage system that sleep cleans out? Yeah, absolutely right. So uh, as I said, it was discovered not all that long ago. I mean, we all knew there was spinal fluid, cerebrospinal fluid that we sample in the spinal tablet, lumbar puncture and so on. Uh, that's sort of our brain is suspended in that and the, and the spinal cord. And we know about the blood-brain barrier. That means that certain medications don't reach the brain because they can't get across this barrier, if you wish. But that we have a, a system that's similar to the lymphatic system in the rest of the body, also in the brain. It's not a lymphatic system. Uh, it was actually not known for quite some time. And the amazing part is, so in the brain, you have got fundamentally nerve cells and cells that form the structure around it, if you wish, so that the framework, the skeleton, where these uh, nerve cells can be set up and interact with each other, sort of scaffolding, if you wish. And uh, in deep sleep stages, the scaffolding becomes much smaller. So the cells shrink, creating much more space between the cells to allow this flushing out of waste products, if you so will. And you're absolutely right. It certainly has something to do with washing away uh, waste products that otherwise could contribute to accumulation and deterioration in, um, in these neurodegenerative disorders where unhealthy, toxic byproducts accumulate and ultimately destroy and kill certain nerve cells. Just to go back to a point that you mentioned about something you say in your clinic being the REM behaviour disorder, is that the idea that when people sleepwalk or they start to shout their dreams out? Uh, important question, probably, otherwise we send people now into panic. So <laughs> sleepwalking and REM sleep behavior disorder are very different. Okay, I feel like I'm even giving a, like, a sigh of relief then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So sleepwalking is a very common condition. It's typically sort of a lifelong tendency, may start in childhood with night terrors, and then they may go away and they come back in adolescence again, and then it sort of calms down and comes back in phases of life where lots of change and, and stress and, and calmer 
phases of life, usually it settles, is a tendency to move about and sometimes do quite complicated things. Like so one of my patients, she rearranges the living room furniture in, in sleepwalking. Another one uh, makes herself a fried egg and so on. So it can be complex behaviors, but typically it's more like fumbling about. And many people stay in bed, so we wouldn't even know about it. It just fumbled a little bit. But obviously more obvious if they leave the, the, the bed in the bedroom. Uh, typically not associated with dreams terribly much. If you wake a person up, they, they are groggy and confused, but they don't really report clear dreams, not to the extent of like cinema movie kind of vivid. And it typically occurs in the early parts of the night and it arises out of slow wave sleep. It's uh, medically entirely harmless. The only issue is that obviously, depending what people do, it can cause accidents and injuries. So if they, you know, climb under the windowsill or out of the balcony or leave the house or things like that. So it's, it's a safety issue. REM sleep behavior disorder is quite different. It arises out of dreaming sleep. The onset is typically later in life. It happens later in the night when we have more REM sleep. And it is actually acting out the dream. So if you wake up a person, they do reported they're dreaming that they were that they were fighting that lady gladiators and therefore they were punching around themselves and sometimes hit the bed partner or themselves or they jump into the furniture and get injuries that way. What happens there is that a normal mechanism of paralyzing us during REM sleep uh, doesn't work properly. So usually in REM sleep, we are completely paralyzed except for breathing muscles and the eye muscles that move rapidly so that we don't act our dreams. Our brain thinks about the movements as appropriate in the dream and the motor control centers of the brain send out the demands that commands to move, but the muscles never hear about it because there's a switch in the brain so that disconnects that and uh, signals never reach the muscles. Uh, and when that switch doesn't work properly, some commands do get through and people do act out more or less of their dreams. Now, if it is minor movement under the bed sheets nobody would ever know about. So it has a reputation of sort of violent movements because that's what uh, attracts the medical attention, of course, if somebody injures themselves or others. And that one is not quite as harmless and a significant percentage of people will later develop Parkinson's disease as sort of the most common sequelae of that one. And so in, in a, if you look at 10 years ahead of onset and it's about 40% or so of people will develop Parkinson's disease. So it's not quite as harmless as sleepwalking from a medical perspective, but they're quite different. And how do you approach treating that? Starting with sleepwalking actually is quite difficult to treat medically. So that one can try various medications with some success, more or less with others. Uh, the problem also arises that it doesn't happen every night. So if it only happens once a month, you would have to take a medication every night just to prevent the one time it happening. So most patients with sleepwalking don't get treated with medication. It's more an issue about placing especially designed alarms mm -hmm. in situations where it would be dangerous, like the front door so people don't walk out. So if they do open it and the alarm goes off or if they open the window of the bedroom or things like that. In REM sleep behavior disorder, that condition is actually very sensitive to medications, uh, either to medications that also work for Parkinson's disease, so that dopaminergic medications work quite well. Medications like clonazepam can really stop it even at a fairly low dose. So from a treatment point of view, the REM sleep behavior disorder is much easier to handle than uh, sleepwalking, uh, but just a long-term outlook is more problematic. And as I mentioned earlier, there's not really any medication that cures it, it's only controlling the movements, but the underlying condition keeps deteriorating over time. And does lifestyle interventions, nutrition, exercise, access to daylight, do you find all of those are necessary interventions for when you're treating people? Most of them. So peripheral things like drinking coffee, alcohol, how much exercise, how much daylight and so on. So we are in a 
country far away from the equator. So we have got the times of the year, seasons where it's always dark and others where it's pretty light. So now we're heading towards a dark season and lack of light will become a problem. Um, many people get seasonal affective disorder and depressed with it. Uh, but all of us will have too little daylight that also doesn't help our 24-hour rhythms. So it's additionally important to make sure that we get the time outside to get some daylight, in particular in the morning. People that are sensitive to either seasonal affective disorder or sleep disturbance may need to invest in a bright light box and, and get some light exposure, in particular in the morning hours, to compensate for our uh, seasonal darkness. And then the other one, of course, linked to lack of daylight is uh, vitamin D deficiency. And, you know, our NHS recommends that everybody takes vitamin supplements between the months of October and March. Uh, and people with uh, dark skin uh, year-round because they produce less vitamin D with the same amount of sunlight as uh, fair-skinned people would. So that's something that everybody needs to follow. The other ones is, yes, nutrition and exercise, and so obviously helps, again, a more healthy sleep and a healthy lifestyle in, the, in general. One particular part is weight gain. People that put on weight typically at some point start snoring and at some point can develop obstructive sleep apnea, which is quite an epidemic uh, these days and uh, has severe consequences for sleep disturbance and uh, all the consequences that come around it. Um, so all these healthy behaviors also contribute to sleep. And so sleep is a quite a good measure for that, if you so will. But the, the whole package has to come together for, for a healthy life, of course. So let's talk about how you get a better night's sleep, because I think we've established that sleep is absolutely critical, not only for day-to-day -day health, but also couldn't be more critical for long-term health and having a quality life at that. Yeah. Melatonin and sleeping pills would love to address these first because I feel like this is the ultimate quick fix for our quick fix lung yeah. generation. What are your thoughts on those and what's the research suggest about the positive and negative impacts of them? Uh, sleeping pills, let me start there. There's nothing wrong with using a crutch when you have broken your leg, right? But the leg should still heal and then you have to rehab the muscles so that the leg comes back and then you can put the crutches away. Unfortunately, sleeping pills are often used as a replacement of healing. And it's just the same as if you then kept on using the crutch and never bother about healing your leg anymore. It just doesn't make any sense. There are very rare cases where people have a genetic or inborn error in sleep regulation and have insomnia, but that typically starts in childhood. So if you slept normally as a child and develop it later, then it's not one of them. And most of the others are a different pathology. You should always ask yourself if you can't sleep well for an extended period of time, is the body or mind trying to tell you something about the life that you're leading? And mm -hmm. quite often people don't want to address that question and rather take a sleeping pill because then they can continue as they are uh, and not change anything. I guess it's the same question with being overweight, right? There are ways of improving that, but we'd rather have a slimming pill rather than doing the more difficult things of diet and exercise and changing our lifestyle. We'd rather like carrying on as we are and take a pill. And that's what sleeping pills are. So it's fundamentally unhealthy because it just doesn't address the underlying problem to begin with. Mm. Secondly, sleeping medication in the long run also have neurocognitive deterioration with it. So people on benzodiazepines as the typical sleeping pill do cause personality changes in the long run, uh, worsening of long-term memory, uh, cognitive performance in the long run also deteriorates. 
So while they were considered relatively harmless for some time, that's just simply not the case. And the same applies to the Z drugs, the Zopiclone, the Saliplon, and so on, Zolpidem, that were successors of the benzodiazepines. And initially it was thought that they are less addiction forming and, and tolerance building, but in the long run, they have the same problems. Again, for short crises, yes, absolutely, that can be very helpful, but for on a chronic basis, uh, absolutely not. Because the underlying problem hasn't been addressed, right? So mm. you end up with the issue becoming worse. Now, melatonin, many people think, oh, that must be okay because it's a natural substance. My brain makes it, my gut makes it. So I'm just using the same thing that my body has anyway. And it's the natural way of inducing sleep. Well, as I mentioned earlier, it's a hormone of darkness, not the hormone of sleep. And actually, as a sleeping pill, it is quite unimpressive, if you will. The clinical trials um, have not really shown much of a success in inducing sleep with melatonin. So there seems to be a strong placebo effect with that one. But also just messing about with the natural hormone level in your body, it's just in the long run can't be helpful, right? And unless you're diabetic and you don't make insulin, you have to inject it and you've got no other choice. But other than that, uh, probably just messing with the body's balance of different hormones is not a great idea. So I'm not a great friend of um, melatonin for sleeping aids. Now, melatonin can be helpful in shifting one's body clock. So if one is a, let's say, an evening type person, but one is in a life situation that you have to be get up in the morning and perform things, then one can shift the chronotype with melatonin and bright light. Or if you have to treat jet lag or something like that, then it can be helpful. But again, here you have got a specific indication for a limited time, and there it can be helpful if used for shifting biorhythm. But as a sleeping pill, I'm not a great friend of melatonin. So what are you a great fan of? What are the things that you universally advocate for when you're trying to get a better night's sleep? So the simple things are summarized under a concept called sleep hygiene. So hygiene here has nothing to do with washing your hands and changing the bed sheets regularly, but it's um, about good habits for healthy sleep. And the number one part is to fix the wake up and the out of bed time in the morning. That's our fundamental clock setting time. Going to bed is then a consequence thereof. I know as parents, we always focus on the bedtime of our children, have to be in bed at a certain time. But what really sets the clock is the morning time. If you sleep well anyway, then you have a bit more leeway. You can you know, sleep in the, in the weekend a little bit or so on. But generally, if you struggle sleeping, make sure the, the wake-up time in the morning is fixed and it's the same at seven days a week, even if you just fall asleep shortly beforehand. And the next day will be miserable because you didn't get much sleep to get up at the same time because the following night it will be rewarding because you uh, start setting the, the rhythms strongly. The next one is the light exposure. Make sure you get enough daylight, in particular in the morning time, ideally soon after um, getting out of bed because, again, light is what sets our biological clock. We synchronizes that every morning. The next part then is... Um, what often comes to questions about daytime naps. If you struggle falling asleep at night or sleeping through the night, well, then avoid daytime naps so that you use all the sleep pressure that you can get at nighttime rather than using up some of them during the daytime already. Other parts, as obviously the bedroom should be dark, quiet, and cool. Uh, dark and quiet, most people have figured out that that's important. Cool, not necessarily. Some people think they fall asleep better if it's nice and warm. Uh, the fact that we like a cozy blanket and a bed bottle or maybe a warm bath before going to bed is not so much to warm up the body, but to warm up the skin of our legs and arms so that the blood vessels in the skin widen and so that the body then can radiate off heat more easily. But it's like 
turning on the radiators, so to speak. Because once we fall asleep, our body temperature drops by about one to two degrees. So a cooler room uh, helps sleep more. And then there are things like avoiding caffeinated beverages, of course, because that keeps us up, up at night. Avoiding alcohol. Alcohol may relax us and help doze off to sleep. But then after a few hours, it usually is uh, a rebound and one sleeps even worse if one had alcohol. Doing active things during the daytime. So again, physical activity is very important and regularity overall. Now, if you can't fall asleep for any extended period of time, meaning longer than 15, 20 minutes or so, rather than lying in bed frustrated and getting more and more upset, it's best to get out of bed and out of the bedroom, do something else, uh, iron the shirts, read a book or something, and only get back to bed when you feel that you can fall asleep. And again, if you don't fall asleep within 15, 20 minutes, do get out of bed again. The idea is you want to associate the bed in the bedroom with calm, quiet, sleep, relaxation, happy, relaxed, rather than with the chamber of torture where you're struggling to fall asleep and get more and more frustrated and toss and turn and so on. So just to associate that. The same with bedtime routines. On the one hand, you could say if you overdo a bedtime routine and then you can't have it and you get all anxious because you couldn't, the teddy bear was left behind and you didn't take it on your journey, whatever. Um, so that's maybe too much. But again, a bedtime routine can be helpful if it's a set rhythm that causes conditioned reflex with this particular thing is associated with me sleeping well. So that's why children quite typically, as I mentioned, a teddy bear or something have that associated with bedtime and sleeping and, um, memories from childhood when mom read a story for better or something you can you can revive with that warm bath in the evening or something that warms the skin as i mentioned earlier so it can also be very helpful if those don't help in the long run then again the question is is there something else going on in your life that needs addressing uh, and ultimately of course do see a doctor because there might be a medical condition that's underlying that causes problems like thyroid dysfunction or the calcium or metabolism or something uh, that manifests itself as sleep disturbance and, and needs to be addressed in its own right you know, I think one of the points I take from what you just shared with us is if you've had a bad night's sleep, fight through that desire to have a nap. Just get up, even if you feel exhausted and all you want to do is sleep for a few more hours. And, and you said you will be rewarded the next night. Yeah. And and, and, a, and a good good night may not come immediately, right? So you can't and have after two nights bad sleep and say, oh my God, now it really didn't work. So it's terrible now. So again, a somewhat relaxed attitude to, okay, then there might be a few nights that I sleep not, not as well and that will be fine again in the long run. Probably is more helpful in that regard as long as it doesn't translate into neglecting sleep again chronically. But some days you feel better, some days you feel worse, sometimes I, I feel low mood and sometimes I'm more happy and that's just how, how life is. And so if you have got the same, a bit more relaxed attitude that not every night is great sleep, uh, that's a better. But and ultimately these sleep habits do help. I love that too, because I I don't think I've heard anyone really promote this idea of it's okay to have not perfect sleep. And you're so right. You never have a great workout or a perfect, perfect this or perfect that. And so yeah. why do we expect these great night sleeps every single night? Absolutely. So that the curve doesn't always go up, right? I mean, if I go to the gym and then someday I can't do what I did last week already. So I'm disappointed that my performance went down, but you know, that fluctuates over the long run. It will go up even if it's sort of a up and down curve. Uh, one more thing to address on good night sleep is sort of what's the expectation? What is a good night? Some people think the good night is if I go to bed, fall asleep within 10 minutes and I wake up the next morning, five minutes before the alarm clock. And that's a good night's sleep. Of course it is, but uh, it is also normal to wake up during the night actually several times. So some people panic a little bit when then say, oh, I, I, I can't sleep through anymore. I, I keep getting up at nighttime. 
So as I mentioned earlier, we have different sleep stages that come in so-called sleep cycles. So it's usually we fall asleep into stage one sleeps, then we go deeper into stage two, then three, then back to stage two and then have a REM sleep phase. And that's sort of a sleep cycle that lasts roughly somewhere between one and two hours. Typically, then there's a brief arousal and then the next sleep stage starts. So when I have people in the sleep lab with electrodes on their head so I can measure whether they're awake or not, even the ones that say next morning, oh, I slept through all night, I can see that they had a few arousals at the night time. They just forgot about it because nothing interesting happened and uh, awake time was very short. The theory behind it is that when we were in the undertow sleeping in the wilderness, we did one sleep cycle and had to wake up briefly to just look around. Is the environment still safe? No dinosaur around that will eat us and then we can go back to sleep for the next sleep cycle. So waking up is not abnormal. What's then abnormal is then if people can't fall back to sleep in a reasonably quick time. So if somebody wakes up, maybe go to the bathroom and quite often it's just go to the bathroom because they woke up already rather than the other way around and then fall back to sleep again reasonably swiftly, then that is okay. So that shouldn't send anybody into a panic and thinking, oh, they just don't sleep well anymore. The older we get, the more these disruptions in sleep will become, then the lower the amplitude between tiredness and wakefulness becomes so that we have got a bit more tiredness in the daytime and a bit less sleep pressure at nighttime. So we have got more awakenings and that's normal. That doesn't necessarily mean that the sleep is poor and you need to do anything else. And uh, because of the sleep poor, you will develop uh, Alzheimer's disease. So that's not the case. So it's partially uh, the performance pressure of sleep is also because people have unrealistic expectations what a good night's sleep actually is, in particular as we get older. I think that is extremely valuable to hear and you are such a joy and I'm in such respect of your deep knowledge um, of this area and all the many hours and many thousands of people that you have helped. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us. Where is the best place for people to find you um, or follow your work or ask further questions if that's a possibility? Uh, at the moment, probably the easiest to look at the Lanzhof at the Arts Club where I do my clinics at the moment or a guy's hospital with NHS, but I think the Lanza over the Arts Club is easier to reach. Uh, and you can always send me an email from there as well. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, we will put those uh, details in the show notes. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Bobby. Always fun. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love want flexibility Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.